you can differentiate from that commoditization and from that homogenation, like that is just intrinsic. You can guard against that with not taking the human element out of your business. Welcome to Subscriptions Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. Join us each week to hear from industry leaders in the subscription space, share their best tips and stories, and learn how you can up-level your subscription business today. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Subscription Scaled. I'm your host, Nick Frederick. With me today is JP Worland, who is the co-founder and former CEO of Pipeline CRM and the new co-founder and new CEO of Pyrezo. JP, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. Good to see you. Excited to dive in here and talk about your background. You have a good bit of experience, so I'm sure there's a lot we can unpack. But let's start with your got a little bit of your background about with Pipeline and uh, how you came to found Pyrezo. Sure. Pipeline started 16 years ago when Ruby on Rails was just a thing. Uh, we saw what that technology did to the browser. My partner, Nick Bertolino, and I were really blown away. It's all the functionality that we all take for granted that happens on the browser today. But I think you're old enough to remember where you used to have to push submit and there was a post and you know it was a very transactional web experience, right? Of sending of data and credit to DHH and the Rails community for building an amazing code base, right? Open source, it's open for everybody. And we saw that being former e-commerce guys, Nick and myself, Nick Bernalino, and we knew we wanted to build a product. And we looked at inside our own business, which at the time was an online marketing agency. And we made that pivot that everyone wants to make or business transformation, whatever you want to call it, to go from a service to a product business. I'm sure you've had people on before. I get that question all the time is how do you go from a service to a product? Because the entrepreneurial dream, make money while you're sleeping, have something that leverages infinitely is a little hyperbolic, but leverages your time well. And what better way to do that with software? So we looked at our own business problems inside of our online marketing agency, again, focus in the e-commerce retailer space. And CRM was a thing, customer relationship management, right? And I knew we were onto something when one of the best entrepreneurs I know Heidi, Heidi said, I asked her about CRM and I asked Heidi, you know, what do you think of this idea? And she was running a great company at the time called Linkshare in the affiliate marketing space. And Heidi said, you know, JP, Goldmine is our customer list. And right then I knew if I was building the vault, if you will, to house other people's gold, which is their customer list, then... I was on to something. And so Pipeline was born. It was a 100% bootstrap for the first eight years. We grew as revenue grew and we hired behind the revenue, not in front of the revenue. We had a bunch of rules back then. Lucked out with a good business partner, Nick. We had done the marketing agency before and we, we built this product. We had some fits and starts. Pipeline wasn't our first product attempt. Some other stuff in the e-commerce affiliate marketing space. It just kind of took off from there and continue to grow. Did you do digital marketing and this kind of in parallel for a while or did you hard stop one and transition to the other? 
We did this a little bit differently and we can unpack that a little bit, but we worked two jobs. And I talk about this with pipeliners when we were building the company is this concept of working two jobs. And so we had the marketing agency and we had clients and I was fortunate enough to work with an amazing, actually family business out in New York in the e-commerce space and consumer electronics. And I was working there three days a week. I was able to have two days a week to build pipeline. And that was very similar for my business partner, Nick. But we have old stories of, you know, especially in Nick's case of taking customer service phone calls for pipeline at lunch while on site at a, a, our consulting clients, right? Where you bill by the hour and just all sorts of different stories of how we work two jobs. I would, I had two kids under two at the time when I started the business. Heck of a time to start a, start a new company. I did all the things people said not to do. Definitely checked all those boxes, but figured out how to have a family, have a wonderful wife who enabled that, right? That's not a feat you accomplish by yourself or on your own. And Christine took care of the boys. After work, after working in the consulting or the e-commerce marketing company, the agency, then I would work from eight to midnight, right? While the boys were asleep building pipeline. Nick's story was very similar. And that's how we worked two jobs and built ourselves out of a service-based business and into a product business. Were you guys the product managers and the developers and the testers? Were you putting it out in the market or did you go find a team, cobble it together? How'd you make it happen? Interestingly enough, we were two business co-founders, right? Or operational side. Neither of us are developers, right? And you look at the traditional model that I'm sure you've seen a million times where one co-founder is a business person, right? And then they find a developer or a technically inclined person to be the CTO. And so you have that CEO, CTO, co-founder, I guess, gold standard. I don't put a lot of credence in it because I think there's multiple ways to solve the startup problem. But we found a developer on one of the early Ruby job boards. Nick found this wonderful guy, young, young savant developer, Rob Mantle. And Rob helped us build the first version of Pipeline. That's how we got going. And then we found another developer after Rob and just kind of kept going from there. Do you feel like it was because of Ruby that it enabled the whole software as a service to really take off and truly be able to deliver desktop-like experiences on the web? Yeah. And I don't think anybody really has context for that that's under 40. I don't know. Pick a number. It's pretty high now. Um, we're getting older and grayer and bolder, present people excluded, of course. But I think if you remember, I remember my first web browser in 94, the Netscape Navigator browser. That was mind-blowing. And then, you know, bulletin boards, MUDs, all that stuff. I think until you saw that rich browser experience and that true traditional desktop, right, that we all grew up on, see it evolve into this rich browser experience that we all take for granted today. It was just sort of a coming of age. I don't think it was all... Ruby, I think, or Rails, I think they, there was a whole, like, just the code was ready for an evolution because Larry Ellison had this concept of dumb terminals and the cloud long time ago. Like you go back and read his stuff. It was very prescient. Like back in the nineties, he was, he was very much articulating cloud. He called it something different. I don't remember all the nomenclature and I'm sure people know the story much better than I do, but I just recall him articulating this vision. And it wasn't until that 
end user experience was really realized in the same dynamism that we found in desktop software to really take off. And, you know, credit to DHH and that community for enabling it and inventing the language. But there was a whole host of languages that started coming out in rapid succession that made that similar experience and just proliferate. Because before that was PHP too, right? Like we debated building on PHP and you can still build great sites on PHP today. It's like, it's like a tank, right? Like it's super um, sturdy and you can find developers everywhere. But that was really, I think looking back now, right? That was early 2000s. We're, we're almost 15 to 20 years past that. And you can really look back and say that was kind of a stair step function sort of evolution in, in the online experience. I tell people who aren't old enough to appreciate it that when computers and business first got big, it was all dumb terminals, right? We had mainframes sitting somewhere down in the basement and everybody was using a terminal. And then PCs came out and they got powerful. So everything went client side. And now I kind of describe where we're at now as more of a distributed computing world where there's a lot of different servers and front end, back end and APIs, of course, that are bringing data together. But it's just been fascinating to watch that evolution. And it's happened very quickly. Rate of change is only accelerating, right? Absolutely. So 16 years ago, Pipeline grew it, and then you recently sold it, right? Yeah, fortunate enough to have exit here on end of Mar- into Q1 this year. And amazing group of people over 16 years who helped build the business, amazing set of customers, amazing journey, successful, fun exit to a company who wants to, who sees the brand, align on the vision, kept the team intact. Tim Schumacher and his crew out of Germany, very smart, savvy, aggressive SaaS builders. They saw what we saw in Pipeline. I think Nick and I, after 16 years, were kind of like, what's next? Had a great leadership team at Pipeline and we didn't run a process or anything. They called out of the blue and just the stars aligned. You felt like it was the time in your life to move on to something else, but I'm sure at the same time, it was hard to let go of your baby. People say that I always would tell, especially new pipeliners, I'd be like, hey, like try to check our ego at the door, right? As consciously as we can. And I would tell everyone two things. One, I appreciate your fresh eyes in the business. Like now's the time you're going to have the highest potential to see all the shortcomings of the business. I want to hear that feedback, number one. Number two, don't be afraid to call my baby ugly. And I don't really think of the, the company... And the founder's relationship with a company is sort of interesting. I think I'll get more distance and be able to sort of dissect that a little bit further. But I've always tried to maintain at least an arm's length distance of objectivity with the business such that I didn't get overly enamored or sort of bamboozled by my own creation or our own creation. Over associate yourself with the thing and think and the thing being the business. Like getting your tattoo of your logo and like it's like a little much for me personally, like each their own. I think the critical mind, the analytical mind, you need to cultivate some distance between you and the business, whether it's your business or someone else's business, right? Um, to keep pushing it. But yeah, 16 years. Okay. So now let's move over to Pyrezo. So tell us about that business. We could call it whatever we want. I think we're calling it Pyrezo, but P-Y-R-E-Z-O. Another software business, this time in a completely different space. This is in the uh, fire risk assessment space. And what we're looking to do 
is tackle a problem, a growing problem worldwide driven by climate change around wildfire fuel risk assessment. So wildfire fuels are reality. You not a lot of proactiveness in the space at the homeowner level. And a lot of homeowners are waking up with uninsurable or massively expensive fire insurance, especially if you're in a particular part of the world, which is the wildland urban interface, colloquially known as the WUI. And if you have property in that space, this is a massive problem. How do you get insurance? How do you protect your home? How do you harden your home? What should I do? And it seems this, and I love this problem because it seems gigantic. It is. It seems intractable. It's not. Three main objectives, save lives, protect property, and improve the environment. And so those, those really scratch three inches for me. It's a recurring revenue subscription-based business as well we see with multiple customer lines, but this thing is brand spanking new. Who do you see as your target customer here? Because it seems like you could be talking about course homeowners, business owners, governments. There's a lot of a lot of entities. Universities, resorts, railroads, power companies, anyone who needs to understand risk around a fixed asset that you can't move during a wildfire event. That is a customer. That is a big addressable market. Yes. And we're really looking to narrow our focus initially working with insurance companies who either aren't insuring anymore in these areas or some forward-thinking insurance companies who we've spoken to say, give us your data because I want to have an asymmetrical competitive advantage in assessing risk because really risk is being peanut butter spread across Western communities right now. And just because you're in a certain geography or a certain zip code, you're being told your home is uninsurable, or you're being told via your bill, right? And this happened to my father-in-law who lives up near Placerville, which had a huge fire this year or recently. Uh, I think it was technically last year. But his bill reached a point where he couldn't afford the homeowner's insurance anymore because he lived in the, the wildland urban interface. And so this really strikes close to home for me uh, as a mission-driven project. Uh, I've also had family two family members lose homes in wildfires in Colorado and in California. So this is one we want to tackle. So the insurance companies are looking at it, of course, to help assess risk at a more granular level than maybe they're able to right now. And maybe there are homes and individuals that they can ensure that they're not today. Is that really the target there? Potentially, yes. And as well as like get better fidelity than peanut butter. We believe remote sensing only gets you so far, right? Satellites or other technology. And that ground truthing at the parcel level is sort of where the hard crux of the problem lies. And I think we have some proven ideas on how to work in that space successfully. So you got the insurance companies on one side talking about if an event happens, or I should say the likelihood in a, of an event, but I'm sure you've got governments that are looking at, well, how do we prevent this from happening in the first place or be better prepared to handle it if it does? And I assume that's the type of data you're able to provide them. Yeah, 100%. And we have great partners in this space where we can stitch together different types of data as well. And so I keep digging into this space and the more people I talk to, and this is just kind of those unique situations where the more people you talk to, the more ideas around the business you have. And so this is something that 
we are building to and subject to evolve, right? Like it's super nascent. It's uh, a compelling space. There's a lot of interest in this space because the stakes are so high. How are you then, and I know it's early stage here, but you talk about this being a recurring business. How are you going to be engaging with them? Is that through continuously providing them data? Is there consulting and services that go along with it? I mean, where do you see this? How do you monetize this business? Data, number one. If you think of the risk profile of a landscape, it is one of the most dynamic pieces out there. Trees grow, bushes grow, right? At its core, it's vegetation management, which is really boring, right? Like who wants to you know, talk about wood chipping and brush clearing? But there are very discreet, clear things you can do on a given property to mitigate risk. Not eliminate, that's a, a fool's errand, but mitigate or lower is the mission here. We see an opportunity with various interested parties, right? Whether public sector, private sector, all these different opportunities to help them quantify that risk and show improvement or degradation over time, right? Is your risk going up or down over time? So this is a a highly dynamic space. So the recurring nature of the risk profile is aligned with the recurring nature of the business. So since you've now started and sold a recurring revenue business and are now starting a new recurring revenue business, what are some of the key lessons that you're going to take from that experience and pull forward into this one? Quite a few, actually. It's been amazing to watch the SaaS slash recurring revenue, software as a service slash recurring revenue space evolve over, man, 16 to 20 years now, right? And you think about how much more sophistication has come into the space and real smart people, right? And you see this throughout our our industry, the level of conversation, the level, you know, you just listen to Dave Kellogg or any of these luminaries, Fred Wilson, you know, all these folks who've, um, you know, put their shoulder to the wheel over the past couple of decades in the SaaS space. And, you know, they just far outstrip me on their level of thinking and their level of even mathematical sophistication at this space. And so I look at, I constantly go back to the lessons learned around the quantifiable piece of the business. Largely speaking, you could give me three metrics on a SaaS business, I could get a good sense for its health. And so I look at net dollar retention or net revenue retention, LTV to CAC, and growth rate at the cohort level. And I think if you cut those three metrics, any SaaS business that I start or I'm involved with, those are where I keep pulling you back. And I advise a few as well to help help them you know, just leverage me. Like I have 16 years of mistake making, like come and talk, don't make the same mistakes and a few wins here and there. Let's, let's give you those and, and short circuit the trajectory for you. And, but those three things, I think if you can get those three things, right, you're in good shape, right? There's a lot under those LTV to CACs all, you know, that includes sales, marketing, customer success, right? Like there's a whole body of knowledge under those six letters in the ratio. But any business in this space has to have those as underpinnings, net dollar retention as well, net revenue retention, huge. But it's been fun, right? Watch the conversation evolve over the years, right? It used to be churn, 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 
You know, and then people are like, "Wait, well, talking account churn? Are you talking revenue churn? Are you factoring in monthlies versus annuals? What about account size?" Right? Like the level of sophistication in our industry is wild in a good way. And I think making sure those are those metrics and your ability to measure them and make the proper attribution has to be today in any new SaaS company's DNA, because if you don't have it, you're just, you're going to get taken to the bank. You're not going to win. So over, over your career, and when you guys started Pipeline, there was a very limited set of tools available to you, right? You were probably having to build a whole lot of things on your own because there just weren't things out in the marketplace that you could go in, you know, plug in and be off and running. So as you've seen this subscription industry grow and, and all of these tools come to market, what do you think today now? Oh, yeah, I'm going to go build this because it's this is too important to me or I do it in a different way versus maybe now you're going to go, I'll go buy that off the shelf. You can pretty much buy the whole stack off the shelf. This was pre-AWS, okay? pre-Azure. We hosted our own servers. I went and visited our server because I didn't believe it at the time. Like I had to go physically see it. And no knock on the hosting company. But, you know, this was in a industrial part of Brooklyn, New York, where you park your car and there's this windowless building and you walk in in zero level of sophistication, no real security like you think about today in modern data centers. And I'm not talking ancient history here, like with the Whopper in war games or whatever, like. I'm talking early 2000s and we walk in and we basically have a PC sitting first version of pipeline at the time pipeline deals now pipeline CRM was sitting on a rack in a tower when you know those silver racks you put in your garage to store stuff in that was what our server was and we had to build our own billing engine. I think DHH talked about that. We did the same, right? That today you go and hey, everyone uses Stripe or you know charge beer, whoever, none of that. Email marketing, all homegrown. Think of like revenue rec, revenue recognition, right? Like, like we were a pure cash-based business, right? What's accrual in SaaS? How does deferred revenue work? Like all those mechanics just weren't there technically. And so it was a lot of just brute force. Like something we take for granted today is daily revenue recognition for monthly customers, right? Or annual customers. How do you recognize recurring revenue versus service revenue? All those things. Avalara for taxes, like Wayfair wasn't a thing, right? Like that ruling that determines economic nexus, right? Like so much is off the shelf today. I don't know. I think every SaaS founder you talk to probably has their favorites and their proclivities on the stack. I do too, right? Like I, I know... I'm familiar with these eight tools, but looking at, I think at Pipeline at our worst, I think we had 42 different SaaS subscriptions. Like if you take AWS on down through the stack, like QuickBooks, we ran the whole business on QuickBooks Online for years. But you look at our ticketing software, you look at our chat software, the accounting stuff. Our company alone, this little sub $10 million top line SMB CRM business, we had 42 different subscription softwares in our stack. And it's just good night. So I don't know anything I'd go build right now. Like I love this, the way the industry's niched out. 
where you could go buy very super specific mission focused software for really any problem in your business, right? There was no customer analytics back then. Um, churn zero, like you look through all these different tools and none of that existed. Do you think there's a danger though, in at least certain products walling you into a garden too much? Because there's a lot of competition out there, right? And if we all start up the same business, use the same tools, how different are we really? So where do you draw that line or do you draw a line? Well, that's one thing I think about with technology is one thing I saw definitely in the CRM space is this might be a little confrontational. I don't know, but that all things tend towards a commodity. How many ways can you architect a customer profile page? I don't want to negate the future. Like somebody someday will revolutionize how we organize data on a screen. And who knows, maybe it'll live in a 3D environment like Minority Report and we're all articulating things with haptic gloves. I don't know. Sounds cool. Where do I buy it? But I really think through the commoditization of the user experience, right? And where can you differentiate yourself? Because I go through any of our CRM competitors and it's like, oh, there's another, and we all call it different things, right? There's the people profile page or the customer profile page or the customer detail page. It's really the same. If you look at the information architecture of that page, it's the same exact data, name, phone number, company, email, right? Personal, just how is it manifested? That's why I give a lot of credit to UX, UI people, because they're awesome to do that in a novel and helpful way for the customer. But all things tend towards commodity, right? And so I think to your point, there is a danger. And I think as entrepreneurs and CEOs and customer success people, we have to rethink what is the total experience, not just the technology experience. And I, I really have a problem with the engineering first mentality that good engineering can solve all problems. And I think this was very much promoted by the progenitor of Google, who like engineering rules all. You couldn't call Google to help for Gmail. Like there was zero customer service because Again, outsider looking in, I've never looked at Google. I've spent a lot of money on AdWords over the years for clients and myself and worked with their products and run exclusively on the G Suite, like big fan. But who was the Gmail help desk in my neighborhood in Pennsylvania when I lived there? It was me. There was no 1-800 number for Google. And I bring this up because I think for businesses today, especially SaaS businesses, is we have a predilection to be technology biased and think like Google or like Amazon, Amazon's a whole nother use case in the e-commerce space. Let's just stay focused on Google, but that engineering and technology can solve everything. And I have a, a personal hypothesis that human to human interaction still matters. You can differentiate from that commoditization and from that homogenation, like that is just intrinsic. In, even in SaaS software, B2B SaaS software, you can guard against that with not taking the human element out of your business. So how in the world do you do that? Is it customer service first? And You pick up the phone, like, it's so silly, but like, just say hi, talk to people. Let me ask you a question. What happens to your blood pressure when you call your credit card company, you get a voice-aided response system. 
it starts before you dial the numbers. Right. There's anxiety before. Right. Right. What's that new thing on social media? Trigger alert. Right. Trigger warning. Trigger warnings. Knowing I have to call. I watched my sister last week spend two hours with a not to be named airlines. You know, we've all been on those calls. Right. Just face melting, mind numbing, alcohol inducing phone calls. How can your company be different? How about you make it a pleasure to call you? What is wrong with wanting to talk to your customer? Pipeline benefited a lot from people in front of us. And that's why I feel a need to give back to other entrepreneurs. One is Mike McDermott at FreshBooks. Now for Fresh, he used to be called FreshBooks up in Canada. Early days, he met with Nick and I in New York for breakfast. And we're like really excited. It was V1 of Pipeline Deals. And he looks at our page and he's kind of drinking his coffee. He's like, don't you want to talk to your customers? We're just like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We want to talk to our customers. He goes, why don't you put your phone number on your homepage? Right? Like, that's why Mike built a behemoth up there north of the border, right? Is that basic type of thinking. And that really set us off on a customer-centric path. And the other bit of wisdom we benefited from was Tony Shea, the, the CEO of Zappos, right? Amazing, amazing guy. And Tony, I don't know if you ever read his book, but when I was at Overstock, let me back up really quick. Oh, in e-commerce, I, I was working online marketing at overstock.com. I remember the CFO and CEO parading around the offices and kind of getting mad at our customer service team and really tracking the call center and contacts per order. And we got to drive that down. And customer service is a cost center, right? And I think that's changed in a lot of e-commerce companies. I haven't been at Overstock for 20 years, but they're still around and doing well. And so I trust they've changed. But Tony had the complete opposite mindset. And he wrote about it and he shared it publicly is, look at customer service as a marketing expense, not as a cost to be contained, but as a marketing expense to build a relationship with your customer. Because isn't that what you want? And we just took that golden nugget from Tony and applied it to B2B SaaS software. And so that's how you differentiate back to your question. There is this because you can, you should mentality when it comes to taking an otherwise maybe brick and mortar business and putting it online, that you can automate away every process, all the customer service return, you know, everything. But if you think about the experience, and this goes to your point of being a human experience, when you go to a store, say a furniture store or something like that, you don't always want to, but sometimes you do want to talk to somebody who's going to just let you bounce ideas off them, you know, or, or just kind of hear you out or point you in a certain direction or anything like that, that a website can't really do, or maybe it can, but it's going to do it in a very rigid kind of way. And, and so it's like, if you look at your customer service as salespeople, as marketing people, as retention people, and all of those things, and not just a cost that needs to be minimized, that's a very different approach, right? 100%. And what it differentiated us, like, people would always ask us at Pipeline, what makes you different from Salesforce? Truth be told, like, there's only so many ways you can manifest a pipeline in a browser-based web app, right? And I was never going to compete with Benioff on funds, right? That guy has, yes, he has constraints, but no, he really doesn't have constraints, right? Compared to, you know, us. And we would differentiate on service because we could. It was a defensible moat. And Microsoft with Dynamics, I could have deeper relationships with our customers 
than they could have with theirs. And I'm not talking Benioff going talking to what the lady, the CEO of Ford, right? Like I'm sure like they're on boards together and that's why some companies use Salesforce or used Salesforce is because they had executive level relationships and that's all well and good, right? But it's a big world. There's a lot of companies out there and I didn't need, I would have loved to have Ford as a client at Pipeline, don't get me wrong, but we did not need the Ford relationship for our business to be successful. So I was able to work just defining your market, right? Like having good relationships with 20, 30, 40 seat accounts, 10 seat accounts, five seat accounts, and knowing that that VP of sales could call you or text you. Did it create an overhead in the business? For sure. Did it create good LTV? 100%. At a higher level, I just think it's the right thing to do, right? I really subscribe to conscious capitalism. And so I think making sure we don't lose our humanity in the course of doing business is is really, really important. It's easy to do in a digital world, though, right? Like I said, there's this proclivity to try to automate everything away and and try to make everything self-service. But that human element is very differentiating. Right. And like, why does everything have to turn into IFTT? Right. If this, then that. Like the world does not have to be transactional. It can be relational. Tough to do that. That's what makes it fun. In terms of uh, Parizo, what are the next steps for you guys? I mean, you're still early on in this journey. Super early. We're building, we're building uh, technology. We're building relationships, right? Recurring theme with me. I like building. And so we'll be looking um, to go out here, raise some seed capital, but we're really just building bridges with the good work a lot of fire agencies and wildfire prevention authorities are doing in the Western United States right now. If folks need help assessing risk, we know how to do that on the ground around in-place assets, right? Ski resorts, railroad bridges, power lines, homes, universities. I was just touring Cal Poly Pomona with my son down in uh, the Inland Empire in LA. And I was, I was walking around going, and I've been in this for less than a year. I'm a fire tourist, admittedly, and I'm, I'm learning. And I, I just want to be a sponge and learn from the decades and decades of wildfire prevention experience in the space. But even just walking around, they've done a good job there at Cal Poly Pomona, but you're just going, oh my gosh, this is a huge, huge problem. And what if my kid was going to school here and there was a wildfire event? Like, you start looking through the possibilities. And so really learn, learn and build is our two key objectives this year. Just from the headlines that, of course, been in the news the last number of years, everything going on at West, all of those wildfires that have happened. I mean, there's no doubt there's a need and saving lives and preventing them in the first place, or at least minimizing it because you can't completely stop it to your point. But those are some very worthwhile objectives right there. Yeah, I think it's definitely one that subscribes to my personal ethos, which is leave this place better than you found it. That takes a lot of different tracks in my life. But I knew after Pipeline that this is something that I would need in my next chapter. And I'm very thankful to Pipeline for everything it's, it's provided over the last 16 years, but equally excited for the next chapter. Well, best of luck with that. If any of our listeners had questions or wanted to learn more about Pyrezo, how can they best get in contact with you? Sure. Best way is JP at Pyrezo, P-Y-R-E-Z-O dot com. Awesome. 
Well, thanks so much for all of the insight and sharing your story today. It was very interesting to listen to. And uh, I know you're on this new venture now. So uh, best of luck. Thanks, Nick. I love what you do here and uh, appreciate being on part of it. Thanks for being here. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Subscription Scale, sponsored by Rebar Technology. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network.